The Persistent and Nasty podcast is a series of interviews and informal discussions with inspiring women and other marginalised voices in theatre, film and beyond. From actors to activists, we aim to amplify these voices and invite the world to stay nasty. The Persistent and Nasty podcast has teamed up with We Edition to offer our listeners 25% off monthly subscription. Head over to We Edition and type in NASTY, all capital letters, 25 at checkout. I have said it before, I will say it again. We Edition really are the future of casting. And also you can make money while being a member on the site. You can um, be a scene partner for people and you can help with accents. You can just generally help each other out. And it's a really important thing for us to do, especially during these times and just a lovely way to have community. Our other offer for our listeners is still with Backstage. Backstage are offering our actors 12 months free subscription. You heard that right, 12 months free. If you follow the link in the description box for casting directors, you can post free castings when you type in persistent and nasty at checkout. Hello, you gorgeous law, and welcome to another episode of the Persistent and Nasty podcast. Elaine here. How are you all doing? I hope you're looking after yourselves, staying well, washing those hands, wearing your masks, being kind to yourself and to others. We, um, <clears throat> yeah, <laughs> we would just like to acknowledge everything that has gone on in the Scottish art scene over the last week um, and reiterate to all of you, whether you're in Scotland or New Zealand or Canada or uh, South Korea, um, you have our solidarity, support, love and know that we are doing what we can and will continue to do what we can to fight the good fight. We're in your corner and hopefully we will make change that is lasting. If any of you have been affected by the events of the last week, we have posted a whole bunch of helplines and support groups in the episode description below. Today's episode is with the wonderful scriptwriter and novelist Claire Duffy. A very light-hearted, fun, engaging episode with a wonderful human. We chat everything from Claire's um, pathway through the industry to having a wee bit of a feminist rant because, you know, we are persistent and nasty and uh, talking about periods and um, the joy of a double tape deck in the 90s recording what was on the top 40. So for those of you who are in your 30s, 40s, older, I don't know, maybe late 20s? I mean, I think I'm pushing it now with late 20s. Um, there will be a bit of nostalgia as well. You can follow us on all social media, Twitter 
at Persistent Nasty, Instagram at Persistent and Nasty, Facebook Persistent and Nasty, and you can always send us a email to persistentandnasty at gmail.com. Thank you to all of you who continue to support us in the work that we do. As most of you know, we are unfunded. Hopefully that will change soon. Um, and you giving us the price of a cuppa is extraordinarily helpful and we are in your debt. Remember to like, subscribe, download and review the episode. It really, really makes a huge difference. For today's episode, I suggest... Um, well the three of us were having a little drink when we recorded it because it was a gorgeous evening although we weren't together obviously I'd suggest maybe a wee cider um, beer, a sparkling water or as always a good old cup of tea sit back, relax and enjoy (laughs) (laughs) or unlike you two with your beautiful fucking walls but look at this sunshine coming in right now look at it's mad look at my sunburn oh no you can't see it with that light it's no can i see that i'll show you no it's not really working just take my word for it i am sunburned it might be cold as fuck but you'll get sunburned (laughs) Uh uh-huh well see that's the great thing i've just found it in this garden and i think it's because there's a wall around it it's this mad wee sun trap that you just think you're in Spain. If, as long as you don't move, because if you kind of let the air actually waft over you, you realise that it's freezing. But if you just lie really, really still in a like direct patch of sunlight. The wind doesn't it, know you're there. It just wind doesn't, doesn't find know you. Exactly. Like, the only problem is, so like yesterday, I spent the whole day like in, you know, I couldn't actually find a bikini. It's still in my, it's still in a box somewhere. But I'm, you know, like the vest top up here and the wee shorts and I'm all like this. And then I decided I was, I'd finished my words for the day. And I thought, right, you know what, I'm going to go a walk and I'm going to sit in Queen's Park for um, a little while and I'll just work out the next chapters. So I did put some more clothes on because I didn't want to, you know, traumatize anybody um but I'm still in my head it's this like 23 degree day so I come out in like vest kind of flowy top no cardigan no nothing honest to god I think I thought I was gonna get hypothermia by about like Shotland's Cross it was like what what is there I mean, it's been absolutely stunning the last few days. Like this, it's been gorgeous and it's been so nice to wake up every morning to like clear blue sky. It's like, oh, divine. But it's still cold. There's still a wee nip in that wind. There is, there's quite the nip in the wind. There is. My granny used to say, you should never cast a clute until me is out. Oh, I like that a lot. Yeah. Grannies know. Grannies Yeah. There, they've done that. They know the score. They're like, yeah, yeah, it looks sunny, but you'll need your cardy hen. You'll need it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I should know. I've lived long enough to know that you always need a cardy in Glasgow, even in July, to be honest. And yet, I chose not to recall that. I feel like it's like your period, isn't it? Every month you forget that you're going to get period. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like yeah. Every summer you forget that it's still cold. It's true. Do you know, I literally do that every single month for what has it been, 25 years or more. I've gone, oh, goodness, I've put on weight. Oh, well, that's fine, right? I'll just have a wee pay attention to what I'm eating about for a few days and I'll just kind of, oh, yeah, no, 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 I didn't put on weight. And then three and a half weeks later, oh, my goodness, I've put on weight. What's going on? 25 years, every three and a half weeks. 
I am like put myself mentally on a diet and I also realized the other day I was like oh my god come August of this year I will have had my period for 28 fucking years wow yeah that's longer than Amy Winehouse was alive (gasps) that's cool it's longer than I'm alive fuck off (laughs) (laughs) yeah I was gonna say I don't actually my math isn't good enough I've had mine for way more than 25 years but just that seemed like a good round number that I could yeah, estimate 25 years is a great round number and I think we just, yeah. just go with that but yeah. honestly that realization of having had your period for 28 years yeah fuck mm-hmm. and you still never remember it's coming still, still- always wonder why I'm being manic why mm-hmm. am I so emotional why mm-hmm. am I letting the tears cut oh okay yeah why am I so fucking hungry today? I can't stop eating. Cue period. Yeah. And then the next day when you've got your period, you're like, oh God, food. No, don't. I yeah. can't. Do you know, I feel really weird because I was just thinking as you were saying that, um, I'm probably like coming up for my 10 year period anniversary this year. Um, and But in that time, I don't think I've had a natural period for more than... Because I, so I started my period when I was 15 and I got the implant when I was 16. And then I went from the implant to the Marina coil. And then I went from the Marina coil to the Kylina coil. And so I've not properly bled in nearly seven years since I first got the Marina. And when I had the implant in, I was having such like horrendous, like I bled for like six months consistently. Like I've not had a natural period since before then. And like, that's a bit scary and probably not ideal and like very bad for my body. But how weird that that's like 10 years has happened and I still don't properly know my cycle because I've never had a natural, like a consistently long natural. Fuck the patriarchy. Men should get vasectomies. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Vasectomies are reversible. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Just I was reading that they aren't. So, yeah. you know, they can just get it tied. Totally. I was reading, there's that thing, I think I've seen it go around on Twitter a couple of times, and it's some, like, radical feminist group in the States who, and I don't think that they're genuinely proposing it as much as just making the point of how regulated women's bodies are. And so they've proposed this, um, like, a bill or whatever, that all men should just get a vasectomy at 14 and get it reversed if and when they want to have kids. Yeah. which would actually solve so many problems it's the like the amount of 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 energy that we put into I mean even before you get into like the side effects and all the other things it's something you're thinking about all the time from 13 14 15 until what late 40s 50s or whatever it's it's a thing and it's some and it's we and it's something you live with like every day and um yeah to be able to get a vasectomy and then just get it reversed makes so much more sense but nobody would ever regulate men's bodies like that. Nope. Well, Claire Duffy, thank you so much for joining us <laughs> on the Persistent and Nasty podcast. You are here on this sunny Thursday, dropping stuff like that, living the dream. We are so delighted to finally have you on this podcast Ooh. because I feel like you got a lot to say and we've got a lot to listen to. <laughs> 
<laughs> thank you so much it's yeah typical that my, the first thing I had to say it was about yeah giving men there's that's probably not the only thing I'd quite like to snip today to be honest I'm actually quite amazed I didn't actually hand out any vasectomies out of my walk today I was raging that much there was a point actually because I had phoned um Elaine because there was a, a moment and I'll ex- explain why I was so raging in a minute that uh, I want to say I don't know if I can form a sentence tonight like I don't know if we, if we should reschedule or whatever I'm so angry and as I was shouting I was walking up the road there was literally men scattering out my way I think one or two might have thrown themselves into traffic <laughs> as I like barreled up like in fury and I think that is something that like so many women experience this, you know, you can you get into your late 30s and your 40s and this rage of stuff that you thought was your fault for such a long time, it just kind of rises up and um, then, yeah, we just just rage our way into our dotage, which I'm quite starting to ride that wave now. I'm quite enjoying that's it. Me, that's me quietly clapping because I didn't want to cut <laughs> over you, but I'm like, uh, yes. The rage that happens, the change that happens, like I think it's like kind of mid thirty, and it starts just, then. Yeah, you, you kind of just go, "What the fucking bus? This isn't my fault." Mm-hmm. But it's so fucking ingrained that it takes us to thirty-five to realize. I feel very <laughs> blessed that I'm surrounded by so many angry women already because I feel like. <laughs> you were ahead of us I'm like yeah. I'm here with you guys I'm like great can't wait to jump on that rage train I am actually interested though because Gen Z I don't know if they're going to have the same hit point because I think you've already well you've kind of got already got the, the rage I just called you Gen Z there Misha can't I know I'm, I'm offended by that I am a millennial you're <laughs> aren't you just on the cusp I'm a cusp we've been through this in other episodes and I, I know I am a millennial because okay. I remember life pre-technology. My first boyfriend I texted on a Nokia brick. Like that's, that's not, not pre-technology though, but that's, No, you, I know, but that's before like, like, It's before. I wrote notes. I, I did wrote that uh, notes in different colors. And then you had to, like, you, you folded it in this weird, like, back and forth sort of like accordion thing. And there was a very specific, and then you could yep. tuck the wee bit of paper into the end. And that was the only way you could express romantic desire throughout the late 80s and early 90s okay that sounds absolutely glorious and I I can (laughs) say that I I didn't do that I did that in primary like very early primary school but I feel like (laughs) I feel like most people probably did but I do still remember like very early technology and so I feel like Gen Z feel much more to me like they've grown up with like like social media and I feel like Mm -hmm. I had I had a pre- pre-existence that's probably fair you probably did you were probably just on that cusp of like social media kind of exploding but I, I I'm interested to see what happens with the rage of the Gen Zers like because so many of them and maybe because of social media actually are exposed far more to those of us who are uh beauteous. <laughs> we're just we're beauteous they're just furious with the world I was trying so hard I think so too like I get excited when I see like I am possibly the oldest person who has a TikTok I don't have one in terms of it I don't do I'm older than you though Elaine I am so so I just I just you know I just watch it um but you see some of these accounts and these young young women you know teens and early 20s 
and they're so on it mm-hmm. and they're so they see what because I because I suppose at when we were that age the patriarchy was still I think it was like largely invisible because it was just how it was and it felt like it was just the objective way that things were and if anything for like my generation we talked about you know feminism as though it was like a like a historical thing because we had the vote and then we'd had like the second wave with you know the sexual revolution and so on and it was like oh remember all that great stuff those feminists did for us and now we get to carry on and you know and I grew up in the generation of like the spice girls and ladettes and it was this whole thing we were we would like drink men under the table and we were as cool as them and all this kind of nonsense and so yeah we all thought that generation that feminism was kind of like a, a job done and so it was invisible because I think that's an awful lot of what we're dealing with now it is the invisible stuff it's not you know we're not explicitly banned from jobs we're not explicitly trapped in marriages or whatever it is it's all these little invisible limitations that nobody would ever say you're not getting to do this because you're a woman but you're still not getting to do it because you're a woman and I feel like we so for such and I think that's why we blamed ourselves we always thought well I'm rubbish and I think it's particularly difficult for those of us in the arts because it is subjective it's inherently subjective we you know in other um in other industries people can look at two you know identical or comparable CVs and go hold on a minute why did you why did you hire the man because look she's got these qualifications and but if you're looking at two scripts or you're looking at two proposals for plays or two you know artistic whatever it is any the commissioner or the whoever it is that is um the gatekeeper can completely legitimately say I just responded better to his it just spoke to me in a way and you can't come back on that there's nothing you can say all you can do is kind of look at the the pattern and see that it happens all the time and so it is it's an invisible bias but what I do think is exciting is that I do think that really young women seem to be seeing that in a way that we still thought that it was just that we weren't good enough and here's yeah. to that fucking yes Anthony. yeah cheers to that I mean I have tanned my half pint already <laughs> so, you know um, <laughs> oh do you think that's my first glass <laughs> that's the kind of day we're having people um uh-huh. yeah uh, you're so right and there's oh god so invisible the invisible patriarchy like that needs to be a fucking badge. Um, yeah. <laughs> just... it totally feel... is. And it's especially... Oh, sorry, Misha. Well, I was just going to say, I feel like we've done this episode so backwards because we've just been so excited to get to the point. But at, at some point, I definitely think that you should give the listeners a little rundown of your experience, your little potted history of Claire Duffy, because we're just, we're here, we've got our beers and our wine, and we're just so excited to talk to you. And then I was like, oh... We've really- we haven't actually done an intro as to who Claire is. We're just like, you are listening to us. Yes. Brilliant. Yeah, like I'm basically all anyone needs to know about me right now is that I'm furious. That's that's the potted history <laughs> right there. I'm furious and I'm very slightly drunk. And I'm a bit suntanned, so a bit sunburned. So um yeah, that's <laughs> I actually think though, because obviously um I know like your kind of pathway through the industry I think it would be great because I think mm. so many people are going to resonate with so many things that you say and you've been through it would be wonderful to kind of just start at the beginning 
Okay, so the very, very beginning, um, God, I'm trying to remember that far back. So I went to I went to drama school at that. That's maybe this is going too far back. I'll see I'll see how we get to. No, that's um, go for it. So I so I always was just you know obsessed with with film particularly. I was kind of one of those rare people that I don't theatre. I love to go as an audience member, but as making it myself has just never been something that really um, kind of connects that much with me. So it was always film that I was interested in. And uh, I had been, you know, throughout my teenage years and I had got involved in Am Drama and all the rest of it. But I never really knew what it was, or at least I wouldn't, I couldn't admit even to myself what it was I wanted to do. I knew I wasn't an actor. Like I had, I had tried and that was a real, that was a real no. Um, and I kind of, you know, I flirted a bit with directing, I flirted a bit with producing. And then I ended up going to do this course at Lambda, which I don't even know if it exists anymore. It's like a kind of foundation. So you got to do a little bit of everything, um, including, you know, like directing some of the other, like the acting courses and so on. And so I was like, oh, I think I might want to maybe kind of, yeah, direct, produce something like that. And then I kind of came out and was still a bit like, well, where do you start? Because those are the equivalent of like, CEO jobs basically and I think that is a problem that particularly the British industry still really struggles with that we don't really have career paths you know and you go to all these you know like seminars and talks with successful writers directors whoever and it's all these like you know posh white guys who say things like you know kind of go how do you get into the industry and they go somehow and you're like that that doesn't help like at all there's one TV writer that I went to. I mean, I love his writing and I'm not going to name him because I'm sure he's a lovely person. Um, but I went to a few and he used to always say, talent will out. And you would sit there kind of going, well, if I'm not getting anywhere, then I'm, I mustn't be talented, I, I suppose. And this is kind of what I mean. It's this invisible patriarchy because for him, it did. I seem to be stuck on the rage thing. I forget to talk about myself. But anyway, yeah. So I kind of came out and I spent a couple of years in London just doing like a little bit of everything. I was a casting assistant. I was a literary assistant. I was an assistant director for like this play at the gate once. And uh, I once actually was a wardrobe mistress um, at this production of A Midsummer's Night Dream because I did end up kind of doing a little bit of theatre because I just there was no other way to get into um get into doing what I wanted to do even though I didn't know what I wanted to do yet and I nearly castrated a puck while I was like repairing I was told to go and repair his trousers in the wings like during a scene and it was like the fly that had was like come loose and I'm like you're just sitting with a needle and thread in the dark to this guy's willy like what the hell and then of course the poor guy because I poked him a couple of times and he was such a nice person he was just like it's okay it's okay it's fine it's fine and I was going I don't know what to do and so he ended up having to like jump back on stage as Puck so it wasn't even like he could really let his trauma out he was all like woohoo with still this thread trailing from his fly that I had only half um sewn up so I very quickly discovered wardrobe was not what I was going to do um and then I started yeah reading scripts for a whole bunch of um plays and gradually realized and it was one of those things that I probably looking back I was always going to be a writer you know I've been making up stories since I could write or since but I was probably before then to be honest like my entire life but I remember thinking it was really arrogant to say that I could make something up in my head that people should go and make and and I think actually working a little bit in theater for those like two or three years that I did 
kind of added to that because I would sit and like listen to rehearsals. I would listen to the kind of questions that actors asked about scripts and just all the all the material they had to find, not just on the page, but like under the page and in it. And I remember kind of going, oh, I could never do all that. I could maybe write what's on the page, but like it was such a, it just felt like such a responsibility to write something that was worth somebody acting. So I kind of like skirted around and I sort of became like a literary manager for a while and yeah, read for most of the agents, production companies. And then I was, so I had a day job working at some post-production house in Soho and I went, we got given like free tickets to premieres and whatnot all the time, but we just, they were trying to fill it up with bodies. So I went to see this play, it was like an opening of a play that Jason Priestley was in. Now Misha, you might not know who Jason Priestley is, but he was one of my first loves. <laughs> oh, oh Misha, look him up because he, he's not I as beautiful one, as oh, the was. original Misha. Okay, thank yeah. you. I'll add it to my yes. watch list. Oh, do it, do it. Luke Perry and Jason Priestley were like, that was how I discovered my hormones, basically. So he was in this play. It wasn't a particularly good play, to be perfectly honest, but I went along. And then afterwards, I was in the toilets and um, I overheard this woman talking away and she was like, blah, 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 because Jason Priestley's from Toronto. And I went, oh, he's from Vancouver because... I loved Jason Priestley and I knew where I knew he went to like Ladner High School. Like I knew we, and I still remember worryingly way more information about Jason Priestley than I wish I did. I'm gonna give this out to Claire though, because in the 90s, you would get all this information in magazines. It's not like you know that you mm-hmm. like you would go and find it. It's just because there was no social media, you were told all this information in all the magazines, like this is where they went to school. This is who their friends were. I love that mm. contextualization because my head literally went, wow, she Google searched them. And then I realized. <laughs> no, I didn't. There was no Google. Google. <laughs> I realized that processing in my head. So I'm glad that Elaine mm. said that because I was not going to vocalize that one. I could also <laughs> see Misha's face a little bit going, did you know this how, yeah. how did you know did you know anyway sorry Claire <laughs> well to be honest as I continue the story that involves more of just he, he makes a return at one point um yeah you're probably quite right to be concerned less sweet bum um we he's a tiny wee man he's taller than, he's shorter than me like he's tiny anyway still love him beautiful face and yeah and you know I didn't even have it wasn't just a magazine I had a book about the cast of 90210 oh my it, god Mm-hmm. That is 90s. I mean, I can't even right? with the amount of 90s that is. <laughs> exactly. And I think it is something, and this, <laughs> I really hope you cut this whole bit out, but my, um, <laughs> <laughs> I also have an annual about neighbours. And if you ever wanted to know anything about any of the cast of neighbours in about like 1987 to 1990 or so, like that would be my mastermind that is an acceptable time though to have a neighbor's annual I think if you're having a neighbor's annual in 1997 then I might have been questioning you but I think in 87 to 90 because that's like peak Jason Donovan Kylie (gasps) yeah like you know it's like that's peak Charlene and Scott (gasps) oh the Charlene and Scott love story I had that video yeah I had that (laughs) Especially for you, it was like, I think the, um, my first album that I ever got was Kylie Enjoy Yourself. And I mean, her hair coming out of the 
hat and everything. Um, and the first one of the first singles that I bought was uh, especially for you. Anyway, reader. I still love the B side of especially for you. It was this mad song. I don't know if you remember. It's this really fast like, oh, I can't remember how it goes, but I, I was I was absolutely. I used to I used to do like dances to it with my. In fact, I can actually remember distinctly when Hand on Your Heart came out, which was like the first album from the second, sorry, the first single from the second album. So that wasn't out yet. You couldn't own it. My cousin and I made up a routine and we used to have to wait until it came on the like the chart show every Sunday because we knew it was in the top 10. So we'd have to wait for it to come on the radio and then we would rehearse for the two minutes it was on and then we'd have to wait till next Sunday till it came on again. And the classic of when you were doing that because you had your tapes set up to press record mm-hmm. so that mm-hmm. you could play it for the rest of the week and always fucking always the DJ would talk over the beginning of the track and the end of the track I mean it was down to an art form Mm -hmm. of hitting your record button on your double deck tape deck Misha's like what the actual fuck but um (laughs) I mean it was it was the it was the late 80s early 90s life if you were in fact actually it was probably even into like 95 96 although you did have CDs then because yeah, but even then, you would still st- tape some stuff. Oh, off totally off the radio, absolutely, because the there was no streaming. Mm-hmm. So if you if you wanted oh. to listen to a song over and over again, and you didn't have the album, then you had to tape it. Mm-hmm. Or sometimes you would, even if you had the album, like sometimes that some of my friends, like one of us would buy it and then make copies for all the others. But then you wouldn't want you you would have to make the copies because if you lent it to someone to make the copy, you'd never get it back, and then you would have to live without hearing. Jason Donovan's singing voice for 24 hours and you know there was that was just not going to happen I love how nostalgic this episode is (laughs) like I feel like in my past life this would have been nostalgic to me but in this one I'm like wow to know know that this is the struggle (laughs) oh the struggle it's a positive thing too I read this something recently about how apparently music doesn't you know how it used to be that if you heard a song you hadn't heard for ages and you you could just like you could taste the boy you snogged to that you could smell the aftershave you could you know it was like this sort of sense memory thing and they say we don't get that anymore because you can call up any song you think about on Spotify Mm. or see it on YouTube or like whatever it is and it's so true because it used to be that you would own the albums that you loved like your bands and it was really really precious to have you know x amount and there were songs that songs that I don't necessarily like like enough to want to own but you would hear it on the radio every once in a while and um, it would just conjure such strong memories and apparently they say that that's gone no one does that anymore because you just get it on Spotify anymore. I find that so, yeah. incredibly sad that is horrifying mm-hmm. to me it kind of is because, I mean, we're going off on a tangent and we will get back to Vancouver and Jason Priestley, but music is, like, so important and it's one of those things, like, um, so when I was training, I worked in a care home and um, loads of the residents had dementia and they couldn't maybe remember their children's names or anything like that, but you put on a song and they could sing along to that song. Like, it, it's... The thought that somebody like that actually, yeah, oh my god, I didn't think yeah. of that. Yeah, it really is. It's funny. I was actually listening to remember that song, "You Get Knocked Down, But I Get Up Again." 
You never so, know. Yeah, okay. uh, Chumbawamba. Yes. See, I probably wouldn't have bought that single, but it just it speaks to me about a particular period of my life. Actually, probably the time I'm thinking about when I was like working in theatres in London and I mean, like wildly skint, but loving it. And um, and yeah, it's the stalking Jason Priestley in um, bars in Soho and things like that. But any time I want to remember that, yeah, I just pull it straight up on Spotify and there that whole summer is. It's- so we'll get back to you in the toilets talking <laughs> and this woman said Jason Priestley's from t- Toronto and you were like... Toronto. And I was no, like, no, no, no. no, no, no. Vancouver. Vancouver. Specifically Ladner, which is a suburb of Vancouver. Uh, and she was like, no, I think it was Toronto. And I was like, do not question me when it comes to Jason Priestley and we actually I think we, were, we like got separated at one point where it was about to come to blows because I was like I know what I know he's from Vancouver so the next day I went into work and this was this is the very oh God, so old here this is the very early days of the internet and or like the internet being like a mass thing that kind of everybody had and so we would have these um you know computers on the reception desk and I didn't even know how to like I was like, how do you put this on the internet? Like, what do you, what do you do? Um, you had like a sort of, there was intranet where you could mail, like email around the office, but nothing to the wider world. And obviously long before like Facebook or anything like that. Anyway, um, I managed to look up, and I think it was even pre-Google, it was like Ask Jeeves or whatever it was at that point, where is Jason Priestley from? Because I was like, I was going to prove myself right. And then I was going to print it out and I was going to track that woman down and I was going to show it to her. And while I was doing that, an ad popped up for the Vancouver Film School and specifically their writing for film and television program. And I applied that evening and I moved to Vancouver three months later. Oh my God, I love that sliding doors. (laughs) Right? Although if you did already have the impression I was stalking Jason Priestley, that's not going to help it. (laughs) (laughs) And then worry. So that, well, so skipping ahead a little bit, a few, about 10 years after that, no, 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 not quite, by six, seven, I was late, late 20s or something like that, um, I wrote a film set in Canada and Jason Priestley attached. And that, to this day, is still the highlight of my career. The morning, I got this email from his agent saying, Jason read your script over the weekend and he loves it. And you know, we can talk more about you know, the details, whatever it is. And I was like, Jason read my script over the weekend. That that is that that's it. I can I can now retire because that's just as good as it's going to get. Um, yeah. So that's jumping in. So I went to, uh, moved to Vancouver, moved the week before nine eleven. So that was that was weird. I ended up watching it because we used to have to write fifteen script pages a week and then be in school full time. So I would get up at six o'clock in the morning, which on the west coast was nine a.m. in New York. And for some rant, I never put the telly on. But for some random reason, I put the news on. That No, I put the telly on Jenner. And I remember thinking, is there a film on? That's really weird. And I watched the second plane going into the towers. And uh, that was the beginning of living in North America. Woo-hoo. Um, and that was incredible. It was a brilliant, brilliant course. It was quite a short course. It was about six months, I think. But it was just, they were training us to work in like American writers' rooms. And we would brainstorm and we would like tear each other's scripts to pieces. I've always had a really um, thick skin around 
like feedback and all that kind of thing because every single day you would turn in your 15 pages and your whole class would just tear it to pieces and it was just it was fantastic and then the last week uh we did a like a querying exercise and we were just told to pick five producers and I did them in London because I knew I was going to go back to London because my visa for Canada I ended up getting deported from Canada that's a different story so nothing to do with the industry but anyway um I so I knew I was going to be going back to London so I picked five in London and they were like write a query letter and email it off so I did and one replied and he ended up commissioning me to write a pilot script for a series that we're still working on and um a couple of years later he then bought my first um feature and um that was yeah then I was kind of like, oh I guess I'm guess I'm writer girl now indeed you are and then you moved into novel writing as well yes yes so I mean I kind of make it um that sound like it was a sort of wonderful so I had I've got had a great um connection with this producer Neil Thompson who's fantastic who is Scottish but lives in um lives in London so I've kind of worked for him for probably most of my 20s doing different things um kind of got an agent and did the whole like promising young writer stuff where I was you know being shortlisted for the BBC Writers Academy and basically I was short if there was a a screenwriting initiative I was shortlisted for it and I was you know one of these oh I've heard your name in this room and that room and everyone thinks you're amazing and I was like brilliant give me money somebody give me some real money and I get invited you know I did a few like they do these seminars for like the most promising writers you have like a day's script and that was great and I was like great give me a commission give give me money and that kind of went on for sort of like two or three years now that's pretty typical that is you know everyone kind of goes through that you sort of get to this point where for a long time you're not writing that well like it takes a long time to really be I know of a few people who've got really big sales with their first script and then they just burn out because it's, it's a skill it's a muscle like anything else and you will never build up the endurance to do it full time unless you have a solid minimum five years of just knockbacks and just kind of um so yes yeah, so probably the majority of rejections I got at that point were totally justified but it was this kind of thing I've always said you kind of get into this like a holding pattern you know like over Heathrow where you're there you've you're you're over the, the airport where you want to be so you've got maybe your agent you've had a couple of commissions you've had some money from screenwriting but you're still you know in my case I was a legal PA in London at the time and so you're just kind of circling waiting for that one that's gonna be, be produced or you know it's going to go away it's going to kind of get you and that just didn't happen and I just circled and circled and I just went nuts and then I got bored one day I was <laughs> I was working for this legal firm in Bond Street and this boy, this child, this man child in pastel colored trousers tried to explain the alphabet to me. He was telling me to do some filing for him. And he was like, now dear, what I'm going to need you to do is put everything that begins with A on this first pile and everything that begins with B. And then, and something in me broke. Like it's because I was in my late 20s, I was nearly 30 by that point. And I'm just sitting there going, I'm supposed to be this hot writer and you're telling me how the alphabet works and so I went into the filing cabinet and I sat there on strike for the rest of the afternoon and two days later I moved to Sweden and I was reading the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo books at the time and I just had this notion you know because of course 
we were in the EU at the time. So there was no reason that I couldn't go and be an EU migrant in a country, even though I was like skint and had no you know, work or anything. Um, yeah, I just went and I booked a, a one-way ticket to Stockholm because I just thought, why not? Something's going to give, something's going to change. Um, and I think I was like generally in a little bit of, like a lot of my friends were kind of, we were like early 30s by then. A lot of my friends were like kind of getting engaged. You know, I didn't really particularly was, wasn't looking for that in my life, but I did feel that I was just treading water, not getting anywhere professionally, nothing really changing um, personally. And so, yeah, I booked a one-way ticket to Stockholm thinking, well, do you know what? Maybe I'll just, it'll be an adventure for like a couple of months and it'll wake my brain up and it'll make me write some like amazing Swedish film and everything will change. And so I lived there full time for six years. And um, and kind of, it was a really, really good move in a lot of ways because it was when The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo first came out. And so there was a lot of interest in working with Americans and working with English speaking, work, work, English language scripts. And so all of a sudden here I was kind of being like, well, I live in Stockholm and I speak some Swedish you know, after a while and I speak English. And so I started getting to do a lot of kind of what they call like bread and butter work, working on various projects over there, but same kind of thing. At a slightly, this is kind of what happens a lot. You get to a level and then you get stuck there. And then you kind of get to the next level and then you get stuck there and then and so on and so forth. And that's kind of what I did. So I was now working full time as a screenwriter, but I was still waiting on that you know, big thing that was going to be on the telly that I written by Claire Duffy. And there were things, words I had written have been on screen, but rarely have I, because I've been like the eighth writer to take a pass at it, or I've been polishing English dialogue or like whatever it is. And finally, I got to a point where I had three projects optioned by three of the biggest production companies in Stockholm. Uh, Like the ones, the ones behind the girl with the dragon tattoo, the ones behind the bridge, and then you would know what's uh, some close to Nabakash. And I was like, right, one of the three, one of the three is going to go. It's going to at least get a pilot. It's, it's going to go. In the space of one week, they all keeled over and died. And it was stuff like there was one producer. It was like, it was, it was a really sad story. It was like his father-in-law had a stroke. And so his wife had to go and look after them. So then he had to look after the kids. So he took a leave, leave of absence. And all his projects just sort of died. And the option ran out. And that was that. And they were all similar. And that was the thing that kind of broke me a little bit. Because see if it had been not good enough. See if it had been like, sorry, we're not taking this any further because it needs more work or it's just not what we think is going to be good. It was stuff that was just completely and utterly beyond my control. And I was just like, I can't, I can't, I can't do this. I can't live like this. I can't live thinking that maybe by next year I'll be this like hot writer or maybe I'll still be here. I can't because the only thing you can do when all those projects kill over and die like that is dust yourself down think of a bunch more new ideas get back pitching like that's it that, that's the sort of the merry-go-round that you're on and I just remember going I don't have it in me to do that again and so I took out like a week to just cut about my flat feeling sorry for myself and then one of my good friends in Stockholm works for a um a nursery school like you know over there daycare is sort of part of the school system because it's so subsidized by um the government the reason that they subsidized daycare to the extent they do so basically it's means tested you pay a max I think it's you pay one percent of your monthly paycheck to a maximum of the equivalent of 80 pounds a month and you have a legal right to child care for all the hours you work including night shifts 
That's how that works. And now the reason that that works is that they did a study in the 70s where they discovered that all the money that they invest in childcare and in like parental leave and so on, they still net come out ahead when they don't lose an entire generation of women from the workforce every year. They pay to educate women and they, they get more back from women's taxes, from women's contributions. So the state still comes out ahead, even though you pay 60 to 80 pounds a month. And they and they run according to the hours they choose to be open. Like we leave because we had children of like nurses and firemen, and we would just have to, we would just work out the the um schedule so that we would stay um for I've just realized I've skipped ahead saying I worked in this nursery, by the way, because my friend was like, okay. You can either continue to cut back in your jammies, drinking wine, hating the world, or I really need a substitute teacher next week. Do you want to come and play with babies? And I was like, yes, I want to come and play with the babies. And so I ended up working as a nursery school teacher in Stockholm for a year and a half. And I wrote my first novel while my kids were napping because I had the one-year-olds. And we it was brilliant, actually, because there's two teachers in every class. Um because we had like math used to change and stuff. And the other teacher was a mum. So she always had like lots of errands she would have to do in, in her lunch break. So what you would do is you would supervise the nap for an hour and then you get your lunch break for an hour. So we came up with a deal that I would supervise the nap, the nap for two hours. She would go and do all the errands she needed to do. And I wrote, excuse me, I wrote my first novel. And there were times that they would like start to wake when I was at a really good bit. And I'd be like, like with my foot on their bum just like just let me get to the end of this page and um yeah and I even had there was one a couple of after a while because they start to get weaned off so two hour nap by kind of 18 months to two I would have some parents be like oh little Leon he's not um sleeping at night could you start to wean him off his nap and I would be like yes I um, Leon slept for two hours and I'd be like I don't know why he's not sleeping at night it's so weird <laughs> I love that I feel like it's so good to hear the actual reality of a career because we so often see like just like the glowy we talked about this on another podcast as well but like we talk about like that kind of the glowy shiny like exciting career that people see on your CV but actually, like, the reality is there's a lot of rejection, there's a lot of graft, there's a lot of side hustle. Oh, and absolutely. I had another point, but my beers hit me. Sorry, I just jumped in. Like, <laughs> there was something else I was going to was gonna say as well. Um, I've um, There was a, a quote that I read recently. Uh, Ahmad um, Mickelson um, has like answered a question about is mm-hmm. there like philosophy that you carried through your career? And he says in this about every job you do needs to be the most important thing. Even if like you look back or even if like it's not that important, but you need to go at it with absolutely like committing to those like individual jobs because if you imagine your career is like being a certain like point if you like imagine your career like in the distance then you will always be disappointed whereas if you take every step as like being a real achievement and a real accomplishment then you're going to look back and be like I am so proud of all of those steps I've taken and I like even reading this quote even what like reading this in front of me I feel like I didn't do that the justice 
but for me I've been really thinking about that this week about how it's really important to recognize our accomplishments as we go and see the jobs that we're doing whether it's literally stepping back because nothing is working and we're not feeling the satisfaction stepping back and being like I'm gonna go play with babies now because fuck this shit I'm out and that's when like when you're enjoying yourself and when you're like giving yourself that time to just be that is when the real stuff happens and when you look back and you're like god how funny is that that like it felt like that was the end and that was actually just the beginning so thank you for sharing such an honest like insight into your career, Claire, because it's so good mm-hmm. to hear and it's so affirming. I mean, I think it's a really important thing to do because I too have so many times that listening to you know, podcasts or watching interviews with writers and it always seems to be, oh, one day I just thought I would sit down and write this script and then I gave it to my friend at the BBC and oh, here we are in the red carpet then. And I just sit there being like, because because there's so much more to that and I think there's a slight kind of like twist on that quotation that I totally agree with but I also think that one of the biggest mistakes that I did make in the, and, and, and part of it was the, the industry is a dumpster fire and you know I wasn't doing anything wrong but also to the extent that I was doing something wrong I think I was thinking in terms of a career I was like I would take advice from these seminars I'm talking about the whole talent without, without will out pish and I was kind of going right okay so I have to have my spec for Holby City and I have to have my contained thriller for a low budget British budget and I have to kind of do these things that will be my building blocks into a career and none of that worked because I don't I you know I don't have any I don't have any problem with Holby City but I don't ache to write it I don't need to you know it doesn't keep me awake at night my my contained thrillers I don't even really like watching them you know I'm a like big budget Hollywood aliens blown shit up kind of gal and I would try to write these indie films that I thought would get me on my way to a career because I was told that that's what you get told all the time here are the things and you have to go through the BBC writers room and you have to you know blah 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 you know what you don't because that route doesn't work for the vast majority of people. And one of the things that kind of breaking a little bit and stepping away into this completely different environment where nobody cared, you know, you know, as you do get, I think sometimes a bit caught into the industry when all your friends are in the industry, you go to the pub and you all bitch about the industry and that's brilliant and you need that, but it can also, you forget that there are people that don't know or care about any of this stuff that like fills our world and that was something that was so brilliant about uh, working in this nursery because there was no one who had anything actually except for one of the mums who's a producer and is now a really good friend I've since worked with um I used to take her little boy he got so attached to me I would take him on my lunch break um this was after the kids stopped napping and I would just like sit there in the staff room for a cup of tea with Tyler and Minnie and now it's great because like I zoom with her and I see him like playing video games he's like nine in this person and I'm like oh I remember you so yeah so I think just stepping away and also I started to get to this point that I would get annoyed whenever I saw another guy getting funding for something and it, it was guys who pals and guys who on an individual basis I don't you know begrudge them a career at all but it would just start to be a bit like why, why did that get commissioned and that's that's the same producer that didn't even reply to my email and you just you start to go down this rabbit hole which 
isn't inaccurate, but it's not helpful. It's just, it's not going to do anything for you. So by coming away from it and then writing, because actually the first book that I wrote, it, it was a total accident. I wrote a blog. I wrote this fictional blog from the point of view of the protagonist in one of the films that had died a death that week. Because I just remember, because I think one of the most maddening things about being a you know, screenwriter that hasn't made it yet is that a screenplay isn't a thing. Unless something's made, it's, you're just, it's like you're just writing, making blueprints over and over for something that's never, ever built. And so you tell people, oh, I'm a screenwriter. And they go, oh, anything I've, I've seen or anything. And you're just like, no. And so you pour your heart and soul into these stories and you fall in love with these characters and you have sparkling dialogue and da, da, da. And then it just, if it dies, it just it never exists. And I remember it was because I think I lasted maybe like two or three weeks. Just I was like, right, I'm a preschool teacher now. I just I changed nappies and I sing wheels on the bus in Swedish. And that's just what I do now. And then I, just this story, it kept coming to me of, of this. And I had already obviously written a um, draft of the screenplay. But I was like, I have, to, I have to get it out. I have to connect with people. That's that, And that's what all storytellers, all we would ever want to do. So I had this mad idea that I would write it as a blog as though I was her. And it makes me sound really stupid and naive now. But I, I didn't think consciously in terms of like catfishing anyone or it was just for me. It was just the best way I could think of that. And I wouldn't have to ask anyone's permission. I could just click publish and it would be out in the world. And even if nobody read it, that was fine because it's still, it would exist. It would be like words I had typed that were a thing. I could print it off and hold it in my hand. And that's what I did. And so I kind of write it because it was, so it was uh, um, this American woman who'd met a Swedish guy on holiday. She moves to Stockholm, like, you know, whirlwind romance, moves to Stockholm to be with him because loads of my friends went through that experience. They were these kind of love refugees, they're called. And just as she's starting to realize that she doesn't maybe know him as much because people are really different when they're on holiday to when they get home particularly Swedes um so she's a bit like it's a honeymoon period but does she fully trust him I don't know one of his best friends gets murdered and clearly the police are kind of circling him so she's a bit like am I the protective girlfriend trying to clear his name or am I investigating a guy I live with for murder so that was the film I thought it would have been quite a good film who knows but so I started off as this like expat blog hey guys I'm in Stockholm I've moved in with my gorgeous Anders blah 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 and I wrote it as this like American you know all of her observation all things that I had you know got because I was I've been living in Stockholm maybe four or five years at this point so I just I remember because it's such a it's a really unique culture and it's this strange thing because on the one hand it's sort of European but then it's way more foreign than you fully realize especially when you're living there and you're trying to work out all these little like social niceties that would you, like you just go around offending people all the time because you just don't know that you, you, know, you like you never walk into somebody's house with your shoes on in Stockholm like in Sweden like never under any circumstances you will be ostracized for life um, and also it was this kind of thing as well that because social like the way people make friends and the way they socialize is so different. I spent a lot of time being really unsure of myself because it would be a bit like, you know, like in Britain, if you, well, a little bit like where the three of us first met, you think, let's meet for one drink and get to know each other. And then like five hours later, you're falling in a taxi trying to like put your mask on upside down and remember where you live. 
And so that's pretty like standard British getting to be friends with people. In Sweden, if you say to someone, let's go for a quick drink after work, they will drink one drink quickly and then they will go home. And you're left there going, oh, was it, was it me? But it's not, it's there that literal. I mean, in Scott, I mean, for me, if something, mm-hmm. I would be like, oh my God, what? Both of our jaws dropped. We were like, oh, how could they do that? I mean, start, how could you be so you like- the whole, oh, okay, yeah, let's meet for a drink. Mm-hmm. It's going to be more than one drink. Well, exactly. And especially, I think there is this kind of like un- unconscious thing as well. If you're having fun, it continues until- you're either no longer having fun or in our case, you're no longer standing up one or the other. Yes, you know, the bar is shut. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and you've gone on a wee bit longer than the two hours that COVID allowed, but luckily <laughs> the barman was nice. We didn't have to pretend I would like to say because it was very quiet and we got to stay. They didn't give us an end time. It was midweek. Mm-hmm. We were following all the rules. No rules were broken. We were two meters apart at the table. (laughs) Plus the amount of alcohol we were drinking would have killed fucking anything anyway. Exactly. We were totally Yeah, that was it. (laughs) Jinx. Yeah, so I had spent this whole first year thinking that like people didn't like me. So I was like, oh, that's such an interesting setting for a psychological thriller because she's like questioning her perception. You know the way that you like you get a gut feeling about somebody. Somebody's good people or not sure about you. Don't know why, but I'll just, you know, not sure about you. But when you can't trust that and somebody you know might be a murderer, that was so anyway, I started writing this blog and people started reading it and it was literally more people than had ever read any of my screenplays in like 12 years as a screenwriter at this point so and it wasn't like massive by you know blog standards but a few thousand started kind of like building up and they would comment and it became this kind of like little community and then I started to realize that they all thought she was a real person and I had just assumed that it because she had a really interesting life but I started getting emails from her, like hey I'm an American in Stockholm too like if you need if you meet for a coffee I can give you some help and I was like oh no I didn't fish I did I can't fish by mistake and this is like one of these moments where you realize that like writers really aren't nice people because half of me felt really bad at filling these lovely people who were like you know, because I was starting to like, you know, describe how his friends were really off with me and people would be like, you know what, people were like that with me in Stockholm when I first moved here, you get used to it. So they're really like sharing their vulnerable experiences and I felt awful, but I was also quite happy that I had created a character they believed in that much. Actors are the same though, mm-hmm. you know. That's the thing, we're all slightly psychopaths and in a really good way. Yeah. So it kind of carried on and I kept on thinking um, they're going to figure out they're going to figure out like they have to it's, it's her life is starting to get you know she's finding out dark secrets about his past and so on they'll figure it out they don't figure it out they're still messaging her and commenting and emailing and I know a murder is about to happen I don't know what to do I don't know what to do I have never been so nervous as the day that I like clicked publish on the we've just found a body post because I was like, I don't know how they're going to react. And sure enough, I have friends who are like journalists who work in um, media in Stockholm. They were getting calls, 
like I was getting emails going, Claire, what have you done? People phoning up going, why haven't you reported there's this like murder, uh, this body found in like Varanda or something in the archipelago. Why, why isn't it anywhere? I'm Googling to try and find out what's going on and I'm not finding it anywhere. What's going on? Is it, is it because she's American? Nobody cares. And, da, da, da. and I was like, oh no. So then I had to come clean and I, I wrote a post as me saying, I'm really sorry. I'm a writer. And I would say it was about 50-50. I had some people furious with me and I got some like, I got a handful of nasty emails and then I got a couple of just really sad ones being like, I thought someone finally understood how hard it had been for Stockholm in Stockholm for me. And I was like, well, I do. That's how I wrote. You know, a lot of her experiences were based on mine. I'm just not an American with this, you know, eight foot tall, beautiful boyfriend who may be a murderer. Um, so it was about 50-50. Some of them hated it and went away, never read the rest. And some of them were like, brilliant. I've been in a murder mystery all this time. This is fantastic. So then they started being a bit like, right, let's go back and look for clues. And it kind of became this like almost a living murder mystery type thing. So I continued on. And when I got to the end, one of them said, can you put this together? Can I, can I get this on my Kindle somehow? So I can, because of course I've been writing like posting one chapter a day for about six months at this point. And I, I, give, I Googled put book on Kindle and I discovered self-publishing as an industry. It's this huge cottage industry and people are making millions who've been turned down by every publisher in the world. And I went, oh, this is for me. So I, I mean, I mean, I cringe now to look back. I didn't edit it. I didn't proofread it. I like made a cover on, I think it was like Google Paint or something. Like, it wasn't even Photoshop. It was horrendous. <laughs> just this picture Google of Paint. Stockholm. Brilliant. <laughs> it was just like appalling. And I put it up and it like went to the top of the like Scandinavian charts in a couple of weeks. And I was like, what the what? What's going on here? And so then I, I moved back to Glasgow around then and I wrote um, a second book, which I then was a bit more like professional about. Because I mean, the great thing with self-publishing is that you still do all the things that published books do. You hire your own editor, proofreader, and um, you get artists to do covers and so on. And I just thought, this, this is what I need. This is, I've like, the, the I don't even know the words I am looking for. I don't know if it's wine or if it's just a time or what's happening. Um, the, Probably all of it. It's <laughs> wine, yeah. time, pandemic. Yes. The day I've had. The day you've had. All yeah, all stuff, of that. All the stuff. Um, yeah, so just the, I guess the thrill of there being no barriers between me and random people that might want to read the stories I write was so exciting was not having to wait for it not having to consider the politics of why something had been turned down not having to wait for six months until somebody you know took longer to read the thing than I took to bloody well write it or whatever so I put it out and it was a series I wrote five books in that series and and it was kind of a bit nuts they all became bestsellers and um I got to go to like bloody Scotland as an author and it was like it was it, it is amazing and it's fun you know I'm thrilled and it's so it was so satisfying as well because my first seven first eight novels were all based on failed scripts and they've all sold a few thousand each at least and there's a little bit of it that's like yes 
because it kind of um that then sort of like gave me I guess the confidence to come back into the industry because I was now like now I now I've got proof now I have spreadsheets that prove it's not me and so I think it was maybe two three years after that I was like right let's do this and I went and pitched two projects and they both sold one of which the options since run out and um the other one is the one I'm reading about today so (laughs) I mean you can totally share if you want to but you don't have to well no I think I will okay I I I love it (laughs) (laughs) so very so basically the um the issue that writers in the UK and particularly any that are not Oxbridge white men to be blunt you know not exclusively but prim- primarily um who've got you know like a pal from uni who works at the BBC and you know kind of they go that route um one of the issues that we have over and over again is as I mentioned right at the um, beginning we don't have a career path at all we just ha- it's just this kind of crapshoot where you send stuff out and then you maybe get something on radio and you maybe get something on theatre, which I don't think makes sense because there should be people who love radio and theatre, writing radio and theatre, but that then sort of becomes this thing. Um, then when by the time you get to pitch telly, you then get this strange thing where you're stuck in a rock between a rock and a hard place where they want the thing that you have written, they buy the thing you have written, and then they tell you that you're not qualified to write it and this and I know of it happened and the thing is it happens to baby writers it happens to guy writers as well like it's not entirely down to sexism um but and it's the issue that affects casting that I know you guys have talked about as well it's this go-to thing it's getting names that they feel comfortable with but it's particularly maddening when it comes to scripts because it's like but I've already written it you know like I I get why a director has to have a certain CV before they give them a certain budget because you have to prove because you're going to have to show up that day and not just let the set fall into chaos but see when they kind of say oh but we need a name writer on this I'm like but I already wrote it which is surely a bit of an issue and part of the issue that I'm kind of seeing and I think it's going to change I do actually have some hope that the industry overall will change because we're competing much more directly with Americans right now. And so I think people are trying to work more and more like the way they do. And they do have a career structure. And of course, not every individual goes through every bit. But generally speaking, if you want to work right telly in the States, you go to LA and you work as a writer's assistant, which you can't, which is an entry level position. And then at some point you will hopefully get promoted into the writer's room as like the baby writer in the room. And then you work your way up the room. And then by the time you're in a position to be pitching your own original stuff, you've got 10 or 15 years maybe of being in a writer's room. And you've got all these credits because generally if you're in the room, you get one episode per season or, or something. I think after a certain level, at least. So you kind of, you don't have that rock and a hard place. If somebody wants to buy your original script, you're already qualified for it. Whereas what happens here is that they ask for experience that there's no way that we could, there's no, there's no we have no means of getting. So it's this kind of mad thing. And as I say, it does happen to a lot of baby writers, um, including guys. I've seen it happen over and over again to women and in the past year it's happened to me twice so 
I had, so I've kind of skipped over, but I have this audio series running in Stockholm that kind of came off the back of my self-published books that they came to me. Have you got an idea for an original series? Yes, fantastic. And they, and the company that I do that with Storytel, they're kind of like the audible for basically non-English speaking territories. They're fantastic. They're actually run um, almost exclusively, I think, by women. And they treat writers so well. Like the, the you know, the, um, contracts are really fair, the money, like they actually pay you stuff you can live off. You know, you can't necessarily go and buy designer stuff, but you can pay your mortgage with it. Like it's how it should be um, if you've got a job doing what you do. Um, so they're absolutely fantastic. So I wrote the first season of that and then a TV production company came along to option it. And I was like, yes, because of course the idea was also something that had been turned down by every production company when I was pitching it as a TV concept. But then you go and make it and it is, um, it's made. And so they came along and they bought the option and that was great. And then they found out I was a screenwriter and they came to me and said, would you consider being the writer who adapts this? I said, yeah, totally. That'd be fantastic. We're like, oh yeah, well, we'll keep in touch. They'll, they'll go and try and get some development money and they'll come back and so on. Um, so about six months went by. And then I finally heard from their new American partners who emailed me out the blue. So as far as I'm concerned, I'm still waiting. They'll get in touch with me with some development money and say, could you go and write a script now? Um, and she says, hey, we're just about to close negotiations with this amazing writer. We think he's great. And I'm a bit like, so he's not me then, I assume. It, that was the first I heard that they were even like reaching out to other writers at all. So this guy was going to come in. So... I just, so I replied saying, um, yeah, I, t- I take it that's not me. Last I heard I was, because I just, I was like, I'm not, up until that period of my life, I would have gone, oh my gosh, I must have got it wrong. I, who was I kidding, thinking I could be the screenwriter on this project? And I suddenly went, no, they told me that I could. I am qualified by the fact that I made it up in my fucking head. And if they're going to decide to go to, with another writer, which they have every right to do, they owe me the respect of having a proper conversation with me about exactly. that. Because that's all it is. It's a question of, of professional courtesy that no writers really get, but women writers really, really don't get it. Um, so yeah, we kind of went back and forth and then I found out that this guy had been offered the the option of working alongside me and he declined it funnily enough and they decided he had a better name for selling it and so he is writing my story that is all about being somebody who has to work a little bit harder to be taken seriously white English guys writing that fuck you mate right right oh my god rage fucking rage Totally. Because there is, because there's two aspects there. Like there's the fact that I don't think he's qualified to uh, to really understand this. If they'd handed it over to to a woman, even, even to, you know, a person of a different ethnicity or something, like the whole story is about being a little bit outside of established society and people not believing you. And, and they give it to a white English guy. Um, so there's that. And there's another one that I've actually, there's another aspect that will come back to me any second. Yes, then there is just also the fact that he's considered more qualified to write the story that I made up in my head. It's actually based on or inspired by working in that nursery school in Stockholm. Did he work on a nursery school in Stockholm? I don't think he did. 
So that was that. So that happened about almost exactly this time last year. And I was raging about that. And then I was like, right, fine, whatever. Let it go. You know, I still have to get paid. I'm the author, so they have to, they have to pay me, they have to credit me. So that's something. Such is life. It's rubbish. In the meantime, I'm working on this other project, which is my so I've been working on it for 10 years and I've been it's a historical thing I've been researching it I know this inside out I know I know the heart of this story I've, I've been in various stages with different production companies over the years it got bought last year and generally speaking I've had a really really positive experience with these um, producers we went into pitch it to ITV about a year and a half ago the woman there was just amazing just one of these oh I don't know it gives no fucks fantastic ballsy women in the industry you know and she just she listened to it she got it and she did say in that meeting I don't think we're going to get something of this budget away with you as the as the main writer because it's not like a film where you've just written the script this is like a showrunner who would be writing 10 episodes so I was like fine I I get that I know what my CV is I totally understand that um but we we talked about it at the time and they were like but it'll be a writer that you really want to work with it'll be someone who understands you're the creator and maybe it'll be a, or like a showrunner that is more of a producer so then you can still do the writing we'll attach you as a producer you'll be totally protected I was like fantastic I trust you I believe in you this is great we've continued on and then today I mean this is a long twists and turns and all the rest of it but today I found out that they have um, already reached out to a male writer to write the pilot um, which and I spoke to the producer and I said so I need you to clarify then he seems to be doing my job so so what is my job what is my role C- can I veto this am I as, as the person who made it up in my head do I have like where, where do I stand? Well, you just tell me because I'll 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 agree to it because I'm you know pragmatic and I want it to happen. And he said, "Well, we think we can get you in the writers' room, and hopefully we can get you an episode of the series." And I was like, "So I'm not the creator, then." And then I found out that the reason I'm no longer the creator is that the seventy-something male director that they think is the only person who's going to get this way. Uh, he's going to be the creator so yeah but how can you do that he's not the creator Mm -hmm. I don't fucking understand this industry if they're not the creator they are not the creator you can't just make it the fuck up you can't do that it's not real that's a lie then I yeah I'm fucking fuming so am I which is (laughs) why I've been so silent and I'm just like it's just no how are we in 2021 with everything that is being discussed right now they're going to go with a 70 year old male I'm assuming white director Mm -hmm. um, who's going to take credit for the creation of a show by a female Mm -hmm. maybe maybe give her an episode to write on go and actually fuck yourselves burn this shit to the ground I so need to pee, but I'm like literally <laughs> raging. Mm-hmm. Yep. I'm, I don't think she know. just turned her mic off because she had to sneeze. It was a massive <laughs> sneeze. It was a massive sneeze that none of you needed in your ears. So you're welcome. 
mm-hmm. it's just that thing though it's it's what you were talking about actually and it's like we've come almost full circle because um, it's about the invisible patriarchy mm-hmm. because even the women in those spaces aren't seeing that no so this woman is awesome and what she said at that point was not unreasonable so I have always known and been prepared that I probably wouldn't be the only writer that they would be because again there's this whole kind of hierarchy where there's what's called a showrunner now a showrunner is almost like the CEO of a TV program and again in America you become the showrunner when you have worked your way to that point so then the creator and the showrunner are the same person so then there's some exceptions to that so like uh, girls for example Lena Durham didn't have the experience to be the showrunner so what's the name John Apatow was the showrunner kind of behind her so that does kind of happen and so but part of the conversation that we had after this ITV meeting they were like okay well how do you feel about that you know how how can we proceed and I was like look I get it I'm, I'm a practical girl and I know that if this happens I'll be in a position to make the next thing I want to make on a much stronger level and um, so I'm cool with that and also as a you know showrunner as a producer as well like I literally don't have the experience to know how to do that so I'm fine with that but we said but it has to be a woman the this writer I think that's all totally understandable and we all get how it works but I think if you know if you're we're having the conversations and um you know it has to be a woman but also again professional courtesy just a little like you know okay so here's where we're at this is what we're thinking this is what we think will get us the best option not the 70 year old um white male director has decided that um they want to be the creator mm-hmm. exactly so, that's... so many ways that you phrase things it's just like I don't fucking optics people can people mm-hmm. go and do actual training and things like really infuriating infuriating totally. infuriating for you so much um and I and I would really love like listeners reach out like how many of you have experienced something similar and every time I point that out to them they kind of go no no no, we totally understand that you're you're the heart of this you've come up with this it's you it's you and I'm like but what's me though tell me what my role is am I the historical consultant because I've been researching this period for 10 years in order to be able to write the script that apparently you're just fucking throwing out the window because the old director guy doesn't like um yeah it's it's maddening and it was the same with the other project too that is about a woman and a trans woman solving crimes together and they were gonna have a straight white guy write it and I'm like do you not see how this looks you've literally taken it from the female writer giving it to a guy to write about a female experience and and yet and you're completely right Misha it's not just about individual women's careers I mean that is important as well but it's also about the stories that are getting told it's about the experiences that are getting represented they get diluted because no and, and you may see it you know it's far beyond my projects how many times have we seen some wee guys take on what it's like to solve crimes while going through the menopause or whatever or going through postnatal depression or like I would never write a film about losing your balls 
Because I don't, to me, they're, they're probably in the way more than anything. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't get the, <laughs> the relationship they have with their balls. I will never understand, and I don't want to. And that's why I will not write the great testicular cancer drama. But they will write about postnatal depression. And I, it's like, but it's, right? <laughs> it's because they have never had their, st- like, space in a room questioned. This is... Mm the same conversation we have time and time again how their their status has never been questioned they go into a space and it is completely theirs to to run like they mm-hmm. nobody has ever gone have you got enough experience to talk about that or do, like they just go in and people are like oh yeah that's a good point yeah that's really interesting and they say it with such confidence that you just fall into that belief mm-hmm. whereas yeah. women we constantly tiptoe and question and have, we have to have the paperwork and the receipts behind us to be able to prove that we should even just be standing and breathing in that space. Never mind talking, never mind having an opinion, never mind leading a discussion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The whole system, fuck it to the ground. That, that is, that's exactly, because you know, even as I'm telling the story and I'm raging and we're raging and that's great, there's a part of me cringing about how arrogant I sound saying that I should get to write the thing I made up in my fucking head you know and it's that's the patriarchy at work from because as it's such a young age and it's so ingrained when a man would never ever question or feel cringy about wanting to write the story that he has written for a TV show. He would never mm. question that. Well, he would never no. have to because he would just get to write it. Yeah. Well, exactly. Like these two guys who have now been paid significantly more than I have to write. Well, they get the second guy because they've only just gone out to him, but they will. Because that was another thing. Because then, I mean, that's a whole other thing. I was a bit like, well, if I'm not getting any more creative control, then I'm going to need you to pay me for the work that I have done. And he was like, oh, was that in our agreement? And I was like, this guy's not going to do it for free, is he? You're, you're all getting, you've all got salaries. Why why am I the only person sitting here with, a, you know, a, a reasonable option fee? But I was fine with that when I was the creator of the series. Yeah, you, if I'm a writer. It's changed. The contract, the yeah. initial contract has changed. Yeah. If I'm yeah, a writer for hire. All of that has changed now. Mm-hmm. Um, I really want to finish on positive because I <laughs> feel like the three of us may explode. So. Mm-hmm. Claire Duffy, let's discuss all your amazing things that you're doing in Scotland with the amazing, talented women of Scotland. Mm-hmm. Well, do you know, it's actually kind of relevant because it was when this first project, that I, the, um, the the one that was based on the, uh, the nursery school thing with trans women, um, was handed to a guy over my head. Um, and it was around, so it was during lockdown last year. And this happened. And then there was a bit of chat on Twitter about the lack of uh, opportunities for Scottish actresses and how that had changed and, and everybody was getting involved. And it was a you know, great, really positive conversation for the most part. But I just remember sitting there going, I cannot rage about this on Twitter anymore. She says raging about it on a podcast a year later. But still, um, I was at a half. OK, that's to- what this podcast for. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I read about it on Twitter as well. Um, so but I just remember kind of going, yes, we all have these conversations. Yes, we're right. But I need to do something to prove that they are wrong for not 
listening to Scottish female filmmakers and actresses. And I just came up with this mad idea of what if there was a way that we could just start doing a series? Because in film, again, you have a little bit more of a career progression because you can make a no-budget short and then you can make a low-budget short and then a high-budget short and then you get to do a feature that's low and so on. But telly, you're just, you're, you, it's this starting, start, standing start all the time for 20 years and go on. There's no way to, to, um, to develop your skills as much as anything. Because that's something I, I think about a lot. Like I've been quite lucky as, I'm sorry, I'm going off on a tangent again. Um, don't apologise, don't apologise, keep going. As, you know, from, you know, the, the training that I mentioned that we did loads of like workshopping and I've done loads of workshopping over the years. So I'm kind of really used to being in a room and I, I come across a lot of writers that are, you know, maybe just a few years kind of like behind me in their careers and they're not as used to getting feedback because part of the problem is because a lot of producers in the UK and particularly Scotland, I have to say, they don't get very good feedback. And so you end up with this, this impression that these little nitpicky things that they put in the email to say, oh, well, we're not going to go ahead with this project because of that one line that we didn't like in this one scene. And you're sitting there going, so I have to read your mind in order to get that line in such a way that would make you buy the project. And anyway, so these are skills that you have to be able to develop. You need to understand your story. You need to be able to stand up for your story. And I thought, how can we get to do that? And I thought, let's, let's just start a series. Let's do a little like tiny, you know, as you guys know, we've worked on phones and all sorts of things and pass it on, pass the story from women to women to women and just see what happens, see where we get to. And I had no, no idea where to start. I, you know, as I said, I've not um, lived in Glasgow that long. I didn't, I'd not worked. I'd been an author the whole time I had lived here. Um, so I didn't know anybody, didn't have a clue where to start. And honestly, I was like sitting watching I can't even remember what I was watching and I came across Kim in something and I just went Kim Allen and I just went oh my god she's brilliant I'm gonna write an episode for her and I did and I messaged her and then I do know I was watching Burniston and I saw Christy and I thought she's amazing I'm gonna write an episode for her and then I think I actually followed Adiza on Twitter first and just thought she was fantastic and so I actually looked for her show reel because I just thought she was so cool and went I'm going to write an episode for her. So that's what I did. I wrote three three little kind of monologues that they could film on their phones and just kick off this story. And I reached out to them all and they all went, yeah, amazing. And we did these episodes and then they nominated like the next people and I nominated more people. And it's now, I mean, it's actually coming up for a year, frighteningly. And we have, I think it's 27 episodes that are just brilliant and, and have proven like over and over again how right we all are that it is wrong that Scottish women are not getting these opportunities. Because honestly, part of the whole kind of like setup of this series is I really wanted it to be, there was going to be no gatekeeper, including me, because I was like, you know what, then I'm just becoming part of the problem if I say what I think is good or not or whatever so I was like, that's the whole thing you do an episode I will put it on the website like that's that's what it is and when I committed to that I remember going oh and I really thought oh there's going to be at least a few that I'll be putting up going oh okay well done brilliant my god everyone's been better than the last like they're just phenomenal they're clever they're slick they're professional they're they're so 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 good 
and and it's really thrilling and then a few months ago I thought right let's let's you know I kept on saying to people we're going to use this as our creative playground to get the experience to reach out to get the contacts that we need and and then I thought right I'm going to do the same thing and I'm going to run a writer's room so um I put it out to all the all the women writers that had been involved and said do you want to meet once a month and we will just pretend that we're in some like you know amazing big budget American writer's room and see where we get to and honestly it's like two of my favorite hours of every month so far and uh yeah it's I don't know where it's gonna go exactly because it's all the fact that it's still running and the fact that it's still getting bigger and better every minute is totally shocking to me or but it shouldn't be because it's all down to how amazing Scottish female filmmakers are Yes, but yeah. it totally it totally gives people exactly what what you've recognised the gap in the market, and that is that playground, that space to develop your craft and just try things and just do it. And that is exactly what people need in Scotland because there is some there is something missing. And I think it's amazing that you've mm-hmm. just gone. Hi, I'm back. Let's fix this shit. There we go. Yeah, let's oh, do look, it. I fixed it. Great. Also that thing of like how, it, uh, what I love about it is the generosity of our um, women and our community mm-hmm. in Scotland. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, you need to get this person. You need to get that person. There's no, I'm not going to suggest them because I want my episode to have been the best episode or, you know, like mm-hmm. that kind of ego thing. It's all about, you need to get that person. You need to, And it's just, it's been really beautiful to watch that. And it's been so lovely to see people um, who I've maybe never seen mm-hmm. perform. And I've been in Scotland kicking about for a long time. And uh, it's been really lovely. And um, I mean, I know for myself, thank you for that, Claire, because it's kind of like sparked something in me. That I, would, I would never have thought that I could possibly, possibly make something as a film like a wee mini episode of something I was I would never have thought about that and I've done it you just did and your episode was so beautiful as well I I still remember like filling up like it was just spectacular and it just goes to show you what people can do because I do think that an awful lot of these these barriers and these um needing to fight for our place all the time it's it's so anti-creativity because it does make you feel that you can never fuck up it does make you feel like, because that, you know, going back to this other project, that's how I'm kind of feeling right now that I'm like, obviously the script that I gave to them wasn't good enough. And so that's why they're getting this guy. And but the thing is, it was it was an early draft. Nothing is going to be, per- it, it isn't perfect. It isn't that good. That's fine. Doesn't mean that it couldn't have been had they <laughs> continued to leave me. And, and I do think that just, yeah, having such a, kind of low risk in a really positive way because you could do five episodes this week if you want and and you can also see how many people watch and, and do they watch the end and do they and that's the kind of thing that we need to be doing because then when you're getting in to pitch stuff because the fact that I have since managed to do like a little bit better since my um since my books have done well it's partly because I can now go into production companies or to producers and when they go, oh, what about this? What about that? I can go, no, no, not a problem because my best-selling book, I did do that in it and I have this like 
proof of concept of the concepts yeah. myself because I've been able to just try out ideas and see if people keep reading them. Like I, I kept doing blogs for ages and I would sit and watch, when do they stop reading? When, how, how much can I get them to come back each time? And, and so I've been able to create that um, in, a, in a drama, in a you know, small film or series or however you, know, you look at it. It's, it's so, so important. And again, it's, it is proof of concept if the concept is, is, is female filmmakers. It just goes to show what we can do, like the creativity, the aspects of the concept that people have thought up that I never would have never entered my head in a million years is so powerful and so and so inspiring and it's just a total honor every episode that comes in I'm just like come yeah totally in awe love it love it love it love it um so just for our listeners oh the end yeah where can they find you mm-hmm. the end and everything else in between where can they where can they download your novels give us the, the rundown the lowdown we'll leave it in the uh, description as well the episode description she did Me it again pointing down. Pointed every, down. Week, every week I'm pointing down. please subscribe mm-hmm. here and here we will never have you know the cutest thing this is so right but the cutest thing is my niece pretends to be a youtube star all the time and she videos herself my sister tells her oh this is you on youtube and she's always like comment down below everybody just comment down below and you know, what's posted below it, Anyway, that's brilliant. She's she's a talk about a Gen Z star of tomorrow. I'm very excited for her to take over the world. Um, yes, so uh, well, CS Duffy is my um, kind of handle on all the all the um, social things. The reason that I write fiction under CS Duffy is that um, when I first started, when I first published that very first book that I mentioned, I don't know earlier this afternoon. It feels like now. Um, I wrote under Claire Duffy and it turned out there was already a Claire Duffy who was published and she writes incest porn, which my granny found and read thinking it was me. Oh, God. So, God. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not just, I've actually had several elderly relatives go, oh, Claire's, Claire's other books. And my mum's like, she's C.S. Duffy. So, yes, so now I am C.S. Duffy. And although I'm actually writing a book that has turned filthy today, I'm very excited about it. I don't know when it's going to be out yet, but it will be under CS Duffy, um, but it will, there'll be no incest. Um, Shame. Just porn. Such a I know. Me. I know. It's, yeah, it's been, it's been fun. And so the end is the end of the series.co.uk. Um, and I strongly recommend checking out all the brilliant episodes that we have there. We will link it all in the description box. And now, Misha, I get to ask the last question. Well, most importantly, Claire, we need to ask you what persistent and nasty means to you. Oh, that's a brilliant question. I think it I think it means how women have to be in a patriarchal world. I think that not giving up and not taking any shit is the only way that we're going to change anything and and we have to do it and we have to ironically have the balls to do it because it's really not in our nature to be nasty I don't think it's not in many people's nature to be nasty but you know again even today when I was a little bit short with this guy who was like destroying my life's work I kept on feeling really guilty because 
he was uncomfortable and I was making him uncomfortable and I made myself just sit with that feeling and and I wasn't being nasty but you know what it's a very very low bar for what turns a woman's behavior from acceptable to nasty and if that just means not reassuring the guy that you're okay or that he's okay then if that makes me nasty fuck it so yeah that's what I think it is I think I think it should be words to live by for every woman in the world as it is right now Claire I absolutely love that Mm-hmm. thank you thank you again Claire for joining us thank you lovely listeners for tuning in to this episode of persistent and nasty podcast and until next time stay, stay nasty, nasty with- oh, yeah.